This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Now the temperatures outside are beginning to cool just a bit. The, the number of many insect species is probably at its highest this early fall. And the booming bug populations can be a food bonanza for migrating songbirds and other wildlife, including bats, fish, lizards, and even other insects. To talk about his observations during this early fall, we welcome back our friend, biologist Joe McGee. And as always, we want to hear what you see in your yard. Dr. Major is ready for pet questions. So to join the conversation, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you missed the Creature Comforts broadcast on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, everyone. Libby, let's uh, start with you, as we like to do. Still out west in Oregon, what are you seeing? Oh, I went um, searching for insects after having um, online conversations with Joe about what he was seeing. And, of course, we have a very different fauna when it comes to um, insects here, just because of the cooler weather. And uh, the summer, I've talked about that plenty of times, I think, on the air, the fact that it, it just doesn't rain. Well, it finally rained this week. We've had two days of rain, and uh, we're really glad to see it, although I know that um, kind of marks the measure of fall will be here, definitely. And we can tell. I've got some trees uh, real close by that are um, already changing into fall color, so that's fun. But um, I went looking for to see if I could find the same kinds of insects that Joe was seeing. And uh, I knew where to look for the ant lions because I'd seen them before. So I went to an, um, a beautiful old big barn close by on a natural air- area and found lots of ant lions inside. It uh, looked pretty much like I think what Joe is seeing. Spiders are a different story here. I see um, a good many small spiders, but just tiny little guys or gals, I guess, because you almost always see the female instead of the male, or notice them at least, because the male will be close by and very tiny. So I found um, lots of small spiders. Um, I have found absolutely no spiders in the house here, which seems a little odd. Because uh, we're always, we're used to having lots of spiders at home, and I really miss my big spiders. No, um, no, big pretty garden spiders. No Charlotte's webs here, and uh, I didn't find. Um, I, I knew there would be no golden orb weavers, but um, a golden silk orb weavers. But uh, I didn't expect to just find no large spiders, and I thought that was unusual. See, lots of bees. Honeybees, there's a tiny little bee here that I've noticed pollinating my flowers, and I've been lazy. I need to um, collect one and key that out and see what I've got there. But lots of honeybees, lots of bumblebees, yellow jackets. That's probably uh, what I see in my yard more than anything else. And I know of one um, underground nest I have of yellow jackets. 
So uh, a different fauna, but um, it's been fun to look, and I'll continue to watch this week as it gets cooler and continues to rain to see what kind of insects I see here. Oh, and a note, I guess, from home, too, Kevin, uh, there's a, a program tonight at the Clinton Nature Center, uh, a, a presentation by Mac Alford. He's been on a Fulbright scholarship to Africa, to Zambia. Uh, he's a botanist, so he's been studying plants there. He he works with, um, gosh, he works with the day, the, those little day flowers or um, spider warts. So that's what he's been doing in Zambia is looking for new species of spider warts. And um, he'll be speaking tonight at the Clinton Nature Center if any of our listeners want to go. I'm sorry that I won't be there because I would definitely have been in attendance. All right. Very good. And uh, again, I always want to throw a plug in. Clinton, the Clinton Nature Center, Nature Center, I think, is a hidden jewel. Anybody that enjoys going out and hiking in the great outdoors, uh, that uh, should be a stop uh, on your uh, your route because it's a, it's a great place to go. And they have, uh, you know, Libby, you've told us about a number of programs. They have some always some interesting uh, programs out there as well. So uh, good morning, Dr. Major. We're going to start you off with a email that we got, and this says, where I work, we have a yard dog, a rural property near the Mississippi River, two, Buddy and Sister. Buddy passed away two weeks ago, 15-year-old black lab with melanoma. Sister is 78 years old, and she's very bonded with the lab. They've roamed out here, and everyone has looked out for them, but the office mainly sees to their feeding, warm sleep conditions in winter, and trying to keep them flea and, and tick-free and annual shots. Sister is a golden retriever mix and has a very dense, dry, woolly coat. For the last four months or so, I've worked as much as she allows to to remove mats and rake the buildup of the underlay. Her coat is very dry. Is there a supplement that would help her coat texture or some type of topical application that might make it easier to comb, especially her tail? She does not care for me tackling the long hair on her tail. Uh, She's gentle and patient, but has her limits. So, Dr. Major, any thoughts on, on this situation? Well, it's an excellent question, and we see it fairly often. One of the problems with some of these mats is they get right down next to the skin. It's painful for the dog if you start trying to demat uh, that sort of thing. Sometimes, and not always, but sometimes it's better to go on and have a shear done. In other words, shear the dog uh, down and then maintain as the hair grows back out helping to prevent the mats. It sounds like they're really trying. But uh, a lot of those mats just really are so tight to the skin that you really can't comb them out. The other thing would be, if they mentioned that the haircut was very dry. Uh, I would feed a, you know, a good quality dog food and probably add some fish oil to that, uh, which probably would help uh, some with the dry skin or dry coat. But... Uh, as far as anything that you can add to the coat to comb it out better, this sort of thing, that's a difficult thing to say. I know there's, for times, there's been something called no shed or low shed. Uh, basically, you put it on the dog, work it in, and then, of all things, have to comb it out. So you're really performing the combing out episode anyway. So good luck to that. And um, I would recommend if this dog has a lot of mats. And they usually occur around the tail, behind the ears, underneath maybe, but um, I would definitely consider having this dog sheared. 
Well, you know, the other, I think the bonus, it seemed like if you added fish oil to the dog's food, that might be something that they enjoyed, uh, sort of like an extra treat almost. Absolutely, and you can actually get some that's liquid. You could just squirt on our food, you know, or, or give a capsule, just like uh, you or I might take. And uh, I uh, had a cat, a previous cat, that had an issue with uh, matting, and you're right, the, it, I, I let it go longer than I should have and eventually was able to correct it, but uh, it was difficult, and I found that, you know, slow and steady wins the race. In other words, you know, do it do it for a little while, but uh, as the emailer mentioned, I think when you do too much of that, the, the, the pets begin to get a little uh, nervous and, and probably don't like the extended attention, so maybe, you know, uh, just do it slowly and surely, and eventually, hopefully, It'll, it'll work it out. Good point. They can certainly get edgy, if you will. I guess edgy could be defined in a lot of ways. But if you get too much pain, uh, certainly they're not going not gonna to respond well. So February is Pent Dental Health Month, but it's uh, any time is a good time to think about your pet's teeth. Uh, Dr. Major, we've talked about this on the air before, but what are some things, and I guess maybe a puppy or kitten, you, you would want to start this, but what are some of the things that we can do that might help uh, prevent uh, dental issues uh, arising in our pets? Okay, first of all, let me state that uh, a lot of the uh, dental problems we see may be genetic, and it depends on the dog, depends on the breed. A good quality dog food would help. Uh, there's things that some dogs will chew on and really have quite pristine t- uh, teeth, some of the dental chews that are available. Uh, the other thing that you can do is certainly can brush the teeth if you're so inclined and the uh, dog will let you, dog or cat will let you do it. Uh, it's good to start early. And one of the things you can do, which, gosh, most dogs like, would be to massage the gum from the outside first. In other words, uh, just like you're giving a little massage to the dog. And then work to the inside. You can use a gauze um, sponge or they make special things that you can put on your finger to massage the gum line. And you can use certain, uh, they have actually flavored toothpaste for dogs. Uh, The baking soda type uh, toothpaste works quite well. The other thing that is a real tip-off with dental things would be odor. Uh, sometimes there is some mouth odor from maybe the stomach, but if you have teeth that become infected, you're going to know it usually uh, when you get close to the dog. I would suggest each time that you go to your vet, I would suggest to have them inspect the teeth just to see that everything is okay, or you might need to have a dental or antibiotic. And I would think maybe one of the early signs would be, you know, maybe changes in, in eating patterns, because obviously if you've got some bad teeth, you're not going to want to, you know, crunch on some um, dry food. Right. Or and a lot of times uh, the uh, dog or cat will let food fall out of their mouth uh, if it's hurt, hurting, and you can tell that there's something wrong just by that fact that they let it fall out rather than going on and chewing it and eating it. All right, this is Creature Comforts it's on MPB Think Radio. This is Kevin Farrell, and I'm here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest for the day, our friend, naturalist Joe McGee. If you want to join the conversation with your question or comment, you can always send us an email. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be chatting with Joe throughout the rest of the hour. We have a caller on the line as well, so we say good morning to Sue calling in from Beaumont. Sue, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi, how are you all today? Good. I want, I want to ask uh, Mr. McGee, uh, I saw a documentary on, on uh, National Geographic 
about the people in Peru and other parts of South America eat insects, certain insects. And I wondered if there was any insect that he would eat. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, have you ever or have you a desire to eat insects? I have to tell you, I have eaten a chocolate-covered ant or chocolate-covered ants when I was a grade school student. Mainly, I tasted the chocolate. It reminded me of X-Lax, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and but and when the when the chocolate was gone, you you got this taste of formic acid. Uh, but those those are the only insects I've eaten. But I understand that it's eating insects is widespread around the globe, and it's not something to you know uh, put down. It's a source of protein if, if people really want to eat. And there are cookbooks on. You can go to Amazon, you know, dot com and find cookbooks for insects so but yeah I, but in all honesty i have dabbled in eating insects but i've eaten those uh, chocolate covered ants but that's that's the extent of my insects that i know i've eaten now you know i had a chemistry professor when i was in college who said which is worse biting into an apple and finding a worm you know you know some sort of grub the whole grub, or biting into an apple and finding half a grub. <laughs> and I don't, I, 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 I think I've done that, actually. I think I've found half, a, half an insect in my apple, you know, on occasion. All right, uh, Sue, thanks. Sad, I'm still alive. It didn't kill me. <laughs> thanks for the phone call. Yeah. Could I ask Kevin. you a question? Go ahead. I want to ask Libby something. I'm, I'm sorry that this is a little off subject with Libby. Uh, I saw also something on National Geographic just several months ago, and I've been dying to ask you this. Uh, they, you know, they, they use this <clears throat> LIDAR, I think they call it, so they, they call the program Drain the Oceans, so they could see exactly what's under the ocean floor, I mean, see what's on the ocean floor. And they yes. said there's a humongous volcano off the coast of, of uh, Oregon that could destroy Oregon if it ever, you know, became <laughs> activated. Have you ever heard of that that volcano? Yes, yes. In fact, there are um, many reminders, Sue, uh, when you're just driving around this part of Oregon, particularly you know, on the coastal areas that we go to, uh, you see all the um, tsunami safe zones. They have several places that are built that are so hopefully would res- would um Uh, resist a tsunami so you have a place to run places to go and there are um all the signs of evacuation areas you know similar to what we would see about hurricane evacuation but earthquake um i've experienced one small earthquake out here that i you know that i could tell that i felt and um people tell me that it was a small one and every now and then you do get tremors and uh, so, yes, we're all kind of aware that that is a possibility here. Oh, and I wanted to mention to you, uh, I guess, when was it? The last time we had a, an outcrop of cicadas in Mississippi, and I want to say it was like seven years ago when I had, you know, we have our annual ones every year. But when we had the periodic cicadas, I think it was about seven years ago. And we stir-fried a few cicadas and ate them, and they were crunchy and good. Tasted kind of like anything else stir-fried, I guess, mine. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, uh, Sue, thank you for your phone call. You know, uh, we I should not neglect uh, Dr. Major on this. He's an insect collector. So, Dr. Major, have you ever yes. eaten insects? Actually, yes. And we probably all eat insects that we don't know about <laughs> in food. Unless so don't go there unless you really want to think about it. Uh, a good thing about bread, bread is cooked. It may have some little, little beetles or bugs in it from time to time. I've eaten... Uh, Right, the, the crickets in uh, Mexico, uh, Oaxaca specifically, uh, they actually have crickets in mole sauce and also different types of soups. So, and I really didn't notice it, but I saw an occasional leg or something like that. But uh, <laughs> they, it was not, it was not bad. Uh, and as far as Peru is concerned, there's really some odd uh, insects uh, in Peru. I have one that probably looks like you could take on a cat. It's that big, mounted. But uh, certainly a lot of the cultures do eat certain insects. And uh, Libya, I did not get to eat any of the cicadas, but I understand they were they were pretty good. It doesn't seem like that was seven years ago, though. Time passes so quickly. But, yeah, but I realized that was right before. Right after I'd retired at the museum, so I right. think it must have been seven years. Right, right. But anyway... They are an excellent, as Joe said, they're an excellent source of protein, and uh, a lot of times it may be the only protein that, that some people have access to. If you think about it, uh, insects are arthropods, and shrimp are arthropods. We eat shrimp and <laughs> mm-hmm. crabs, those things, lobsters, those are not that unlike insects. That's true, Joe. That you know, we eat certain things, and we don't, and we think other things would be kind of yucky. But you're right; they're they're very similar. So it's all a matter of of the different cultures. And I think um, insect eating is is big in in certain Asian cultures as well. One of my favorite uh, TV shows is The Amazing Race, where you know teams go around the world, and a lot of times when they're in uh, foreign cultures, they they have to eat uh, various uh, insects as a, sort of a, a challenge. So that's always fun to watch. So and in many many places. Uh, grubs are considered to be a de- delicacy as well. The uh, grubs that you might find in decaying bark or uh, underground, uh, they, they are quite a delicacy in many, many situations. Let's uh, stay on the phone line here for just a minute. Next, let's welcome John, who's called in from Ridgeland, into our conversation. Good morning, John. You're on the air with Hi, us. Libby. Go ahead. Hi, Libby. Hello there. Hello, John. I haven't heard your voice for a while. I'm glad you called. Well, I'm living the good life at the uh, Chateau Ridgeland, a, a retirement home full of interesting people with all sorts of uh, delightful right-wing obsessions. But we're making it anyway. <laughs> uh, I'd like to direct this to uh, people who are are interested in the wonderful wealth of moths at this particular time of year. Uh, butterflies, after all, are only... A minority of uh, odd descendants of moths, but uh, one of the interesting things you could do this season, which will not only perhaps attract some extremely beautiful moths, uh, but absolutely assure your reputation as a as an eccentric, is a practice known as sugaring. Get some stale beer and some bananas. Let them ferment. Get a big paintbrush and smear them on a tree at the edge of a, a wood or the, or almost any area, and then uh, 
come out with your, your flashlight and see what, what's been attracted to the alcoholic feast. Uh, if you're lucky, you may see some of the underwings or katakwas, which are such utterly fascinating and beautiful moths. You certainly will see some veils and some other splendid creatures. So uh, good shivering. All right, uh, John John Davis, longtime volunteer at the museum. John, good to hear from you. Glad that, that you're still listening and check in. And anytime you'd like to join in, we always like your uh, input into our conversations on this Thursday morning. Let's well, so stay on the phone lines because uh, next we've got another insect uh, eating comment. So let's go to David in Neshoba County. Good morning, David. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Uh, just wanted to comment on eating. I have eaten wasps and beetles and moths and butterflies and anyone who's ever ridden a motorcycle for any period of time will come in and agree. I, I can't say I enjoyed them, but I ate them. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> I enjoyed the show. Thanks a lot. All right, David. Thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with one of our good friends, biologist Joe McGee. So, Joe, um, what are you seeing in uh, your backyard this time of year? It seems that every day there's a new surprise. Actually, a surprise yesterday was something I didn't see. It's been extremely windy over here in East Mississippi. I don't know what it's been like in Jackson, but it's been very windy. And I've been keeping an eye on a, a spider web, the uh, uh, golden duck spider, large, you know, impressive spider. Folks may know it as the banana spider. I went out yesterday to check on it, and there's no sign of it, no sign of the web. And, you know, they build a big, strong web, totally gone. I think maybe the wind had something to do with that. We had gusts up to 35 miles an hour wow. off yesterday. So, so I was missing that, but one night recently I went out on my carport and I saw something fly into the carport. It looked like it could be a damselfly. It was that sort of insect, but I knew it wasn't a damselfly. They tend to be active in the daytime only. And uh, I rushed back inside. I was just doing some errand on the carport. I rushed back inside to get a flashlight. I could find the insect. A little bit later I did locate it, and it turns out it was an adult antlion, which uh, Livy was alluding to a little while ago. Uh, it's a, they're a beautiful insect. This is the adults which fly. The, the larval forms don't fly. They're known as doodlebugs. Uh, and I managed to, uh, I actually caught it with my hand without, I cupped both hands and just have a bit of a slow flight. Caught it and put it in a, I keep a bunch of containers around just for this sort of thing. And I was able to get some photographs of it. It belongs to a uh, an order of insects called Neuroptera, which means nerve-winged insects, but it's not really the nerves you're seeing in the wings, it's really the veins, but it's really a beautiful insect. Uh, but I, I have a feeling a lot of folks listening might have seen the larval form of this insect, the, the so-called doodlebugs. So um, ant-lion, do they, do they hunt ants? Well, they don't exactly hunt them, they trap them. These uh, doodlebugs are found in areas that where the soil is very, very dry. For instance, I used to growing up, I used to find them in outbuildings and sheds that had an earthen floor where it never rained. The, the soil was very, very dry, even dusty. And they construct these little cone-shaped pits in the dry soil. 
And for a long time, I didn't know what, you know, you'd see these areas, a dozen of them perhaps at a time in these dry areas. And I didn't know what made them. And eventually, through some little field guide or other that I had, I learned that down in the bottom of that little cone-shaped pit lurked an insect. And uh, it constructs those pits to catch ants that, you know, hapless ants and other small insects that happen to tumble inside. Once inside, they can't get out. And it's a meal for the for the ant lion. And I must confess that on a couple of occasions when I was very young, I took a little straw or a little piece of grass and was able to catch, you know, stick it in the jaws of this insect and pull it out. And I could see what it looks like a a tiny little I don't know tick or something. It's real squatty. It has a very squatty appearance, stout appearance. But they they construct these little conical shaped uh, pits in dry soil to trap insects, and hence the name antlion. They're trapping mainly ants. That seems very clever. You you know, put some work on the front end there, and then you just sit back and and let dinner fall into your lap almost. Absolutely. (laughs) A little bit of work dodging the the, uh, pit, but then you just wait for for dinner to come to you. You don't have to go to the grocery store. (laughs) I might bring up something cultural here. It reminds me of a of a movie I saw one time. It's a Japanese film. It's called an art film, black and white. It's one of my favorite movies, actually, and it's called Woman in the Dunes. Uh, you could probably, I guess, you could see it on Netflix or something. And uh, it's about a woman in Japan who lived down in some dunes. And the movie goes into why she lived in the dunes and what happens to an entomologist when he needs a place to stay one night. Is it a horror movie? No, it, no, it's not a horror movie. It's an art movie. I guess it, it could be horrible for some people. <laughs> but he, he lets him, you know, he, he's, he's out exploring, catching insects. And uh, he's too, it, you know, night comes and he's too far to get back home. So he asks her if he can, you know, spend the night. And she lets him spend the night. But unfortunately, she won't let him out <laughs> later, <laughs> later on. But it's not a horror movie. It's an art movie. It's, the photography is actually spectacular. Close-ups of sand grains on human skin, that sort of thing. Hmm. I highly recommend the movie. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, and I'm here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Science. One of my favorite guests, our guest this hour, is biologist Joe McGee. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using any podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Then you get to listen to all our local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. So to join our conversation this morning, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Busy day on busy day on the phone lines. Like to hear uh, you calling in with us. And so let's start again with Stanley in Starkville. Good morning, Stanley. You're on the air with us. Hey, guys, how are you all doing today? Good. What do you have for us, Stanley? Well, I heard him talking about an antlion. Yes. Your guest. Yes. And I had a 54-year flashback to when I was in the ninth grade, and I don't remember whether it's Hemingway or Steinbeck. The name of the story is The Old Man and the Fisherman, and there's an analogy at the beginning of the story that concerns an ant lion and an ant and the futility of the ant trying to get out. Hmm. I, so that was a required reading back in the day? Yes, sir, it was. 
I think that's a Hemingway story, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, yeah, Old Man in the Sea. So, yes. all right. Well, thanks for the call, Stanley. Glad that we could uh, trigger that memory. Hopefully it was a happy memory. Did you enjoy reading the book? Oh, yes. All right. Well, great. Thanks for calling in today on Creature Comforts. Uh, let's move on. We'll go next to Chico, who's called in from Oxford. Chico, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning, y'all. Good morning. wondering if you might give me an idea of what attacked me the other night. Uh, it's been about a week ago, a little over a week. It was at nighttime. I was walking down our driveway on pavement, uh, way out in the country, very little light pollution. And it felt like I suddenly walked into a maybe half inch or inch thick shard of glass. Intense pain right above my knee. And I could feel something reach down, just instinctively reach down to slap it away. And I saw it move away, and it looked like a gargantuan firefly. It was lit up, but it was, it was probably 18 times the size of a what I'm used to as a firefly in Mississippi. The pain was very intense. It left four puncture wounds. All four brought blood. It's swollen. Uh, it um, stayed swollen for probably a day, and blood trickled out of all four puncture wounds. Wow. I've never run into anything like this in Mississippi. So I'm ready if y'all tell me what's up. All right, let's uh, let our panel tackle that one. Uh, Let's start with you, Joe. Does that ring any bells? No, it does not. I I think we better go to Dr. Major. Uh, (laughs) He mentioned that he glowed like like a firefly. Yes. It it lit up. Very much so, yeah. Hmm. I I saw Uh, it go to the ground and um, went back later and tried to find it. I don't know if it survive me swatting it or what but I, I couldn't find it in the leaves i wondered if a spider had caught a firefly there there are a few fireflies still around but i don't i must say i don't know i i can't answer that question dr major any thoughts uh i'm sorry you didn't get a specimen of that that would be interesting uh but you had four punctures how how big were the punctures can you describe that well, I, over a week later, I, they're still scabbed, and they're, they were probably, you know, looked like maybe if I got st- stabbed with a riding pin. They're wow. pretty big. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. You know, frankly, you got me stumped, especially the fact that it, uh, you know, had some some light. You said like mm-hmm. a firefly. Which, uh, pardon. Yeah, they, they, I think, uh, Chico, you said it was very bright. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess that's the best way I can put it. <laughs> I'm stumped with that. So let's do some research, and maybe we'll come up with something. But uh, certainly if you see another one, uh, you had shorts on, I guess, if it uh, didn't bite through the, the uh, your uh, jeans or anything, did it? No, no, I, I, was, I was wearing shorts. Yeah. And, um you know, four puncture wounds, and they're all in a line, too. And um, this thing was big, like nothing I'd ever seen or felt. It was it was very intense pain for something yes. that I, I walked into that was flying. Right, compared, um, to, the it, si- compared to the size it of the It wasn't hanging down was from the silk strand, was it? I'm sorry? Was it hanging down 
say from a tree from uh, attached to a silk strand strand i would I, I thought about that and i was under a tree a little earlier but i think i was too far past the tree for it to have been hanging down from that yeah but sometimes caterp- there are caterpillars with stinging hairs you know they can sting you uh which descend from a tree branch you know suspended on a let me let's uh, throw it to you. Any thoughts on what uh, might have attacked Chico? Okay, Paul just came in the room. He was listening, and he says that he had a small beetle bite him on the river one time. Many times, that, more than once, he said that. But he's never um, been able to catch one to identify what it was. And he said it was a a pretty severe feeling bite, which does sound similar. Does mm-hmm. Joe, does that sound like something you could, I, I, I just, we'll have to do a little bit more research, but that's fascinating. I've, I've never had that experience. There are bugs which uh, can cause, bring about a painful bite. Uh, the, uh, it's either yeah, the it could be a true bug, yeah, instead of a beetle. That was, that was flying. Uh, uh-huh. It's the back swimmers that it can give you a painful bite. Uh, but I, I'm really not sure. I'm I'm, gro- I'm groping for answers here. <laughs> and four miles that was lit up was probably yes. two or three inches long. You know, when we were talking about eating insects a little while ago, something I re- I've never been to Asia, but I would remember it in Asia they uh, giant water bugs are eaten. They're a delicacy, and giant water bugs can really give you a bad bite. Uh, but, but once again, it, it, what you've described doesn't sound like a giant water bug, but uh, I'm just, uh, you know, reaching back into my IPM cards trying to come up with, with a, an answer. <laughs> All right, uh, Chico, thanks for the call. You've stumped the panel, and hopefully it's not some sort of um, alien creature that uh, we have yet to identify yet. So uh, before our next break, we've got a call on the line. looks like a, a dog question for Dr. Major, and it comes from Robert in Biloxi. Robert. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I have a 17-pound spaniel that uh, either has a partial or full-torn ACL, according to. We've been to our regular vet and been to an orthopedic surgeon. And um, unfortunately, and maybe predictably, the surgeon is recommending uh, surgery. And we're hoping for uh, maybe a more conservative treatment than surgery, and we've done a lot of reading about different bracing and hydrotherapy and cold laser therapy and the use of uh, arthritic uh, drugs because I guess the arthritis sets in as a result of the torn ACL. But I am having a devil of a time finding a vet that does any type of more conservative management of that condition. Um, so I guess it's a two-part question. What do you think of a more conservative uh, management plan? And secondly, how do I find a vet? Great question. I think I got all of your uh, your questions. I got cut off the phone, so I had to call back. But basically you have – how old is this dog that you've got the AC uh, out there? She just turned seven. Is she overweight? No, not at all. Okay. I just asked that question because it yeah. may bear – you know, there, there are different schools of thought. There's probably about seven or eight different types of uh, surgery that are done uh, on this. And 
they all have that caveat of restricted activity for four to six weeks, maybe longer. And I recommend if you're going to do the conservative treatment, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, I don't know how intensive you've been, but certainly uh, kennel rest, uh, walk on a leash. Is she putting her uh, any weight on her leg right now, on the affected leg? Um, she will after she walks. When she first gets up or what have you, you know, she'll keep that right. rear leg hiked up, uh, but she'll put it down after a little while. It, it, we're about three or four weeks in, um, you know, four or five weeks into the into right. the in, parent injury, um, and uh, you know, we've been very careful. We lift her in and out of the car now, and we've re- restricted her access to the backyard. Right. Um, you know, she still has free okay. reign of the house, and and you hit the nail on the head. It's it's an eight week recoup period where she spends almost twenty four seven in her in a crate for the first four weeks. Right, um, and, and that's, here's, that's here's the other thing. Happen. Yeah, the, just for uh, listeners' uh, benefit, a lot of times, first thing you see is a toe touching. You know, she'll be just barely touching that uh, foot, uh, maybe not putting any weight on it. Usually after, so let's say with pain medications and anti-inflammatories, usually after about two weeks, they start to walk a little bit on it. Um, and then uh, maybe another two weeks, it seems like it gets worse all of a sudden. Uh, I'd continue to restrict her activity. I don't really know how much effect hydrotherapy or any other type of uh, situation like that. Restriction is the main thing. And I have seen dogs that recover, let's say, 85 to 90% with the uh, procedure that you're doing, restricting activity and giving some time, along with anti-inflammatory drugs. You can also supplement with the glucosamine-type drugs. Uh, I have some doubts that they help in all cases, but in some cases they do. But uh, Mm -hmm. good luck to you, and I, I, I think you're on the right track. You're into it four weeks, but let's say that you're probably looking at another four to six weeks uh, with this. Uh, well, anyway, I understand I, that the, the, excuse me, go ahead. I understand the ligament's not going to be able to grow itself back, um, but will she get regular mobility again without surgery? Uh, and it's the TPLO surgery that they seem to be recommending the strongest. Of course, and that goes to a specialist. I do surgery for ACLs and do a different procedure than the TPLO. TPLO, uh, of course, uh, cost may not be a factor, but TPLO use is going to run $2,500 to $4,000 just off the top of my head. Uh, I have a 90-pound dog right now uh, who is a patient, and that dog really, even though she has a little bit of limp, she didn't have surgery, and she looks like she's going to be pretty good. Uh, This has been about three months now and looking looking pretty good even if even if surgery is done a lot of times there will be arthritis in that joint regardless right and and what do you think about that arthritis med and i can't recall its name right now you do eight doses of a loading dose and then once a month after that you're um, talking about adequan yeah it doesn't 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 work in all cases but in some cases it does so certainly that uh, is a possibility if you use the anti-inflammatory drugs like Remedil, for example, uh, I would still recommend uh, periodic, like every 
two to three months, uh, check her uh, blood chemistries just to be sure that things are okay. Okay. And okay. And Les, did you have a specific supplement uh, or or regime of supplements you'd recommend? Because there's just too much information out there. There is uh, one of the good uh, supplement. Uh, there's there's a whole host of them as as you alluded to. Uh, Ficox. Uh, there's the one they advertise all the time on TV, and I can't really remember the name of that one, but um, they're basically they're all supplements. They may have vitamin E added to it. Uh, fish oil uh, certainly is not going to hurt, and uh, the glucosamine chondroitin. Uh, and even in studies in humans, the glucosamine chondroitin does not always work. It probably has a placebo effect and probably only works about 30 to 40% of the time. So it's worth trying and seeing, okay? All right, uh, thanks for the call. Hope the rehab on your dog goes well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is biologist Joe McGee. Let's see if we can wrap things up with a couple more phone calls. Uh, looks like Shannon from Brandon has a question for Dr. Major. Go ahead, Shannon. Good morning. How are y'all? Doing good. What's your question? My question is, what is a professional opinion on hemp or seed supplements for a cat that suffers from high anxiety? I have. She is three and a half years old. She was found abandoned. I got her when she was about five weeks, and she has always been very, very skittish. And we, when I lived in Tennessee, the vet, uh, when I would take her to the vet, we would uh, do the gabapentin 10 milligrams the night before and the morning of, and the gabapentin had no effects on her to calm her down for her visit. And then we tried a prescription of Kitty Xanax, and that made her totally lethargic. And I was curious if... Anybody has any opinions on supplements, uh, whether maybe hemp or CBD oil treats that I could give her once a day that might relieve her of her anxiety? Dr. Major, what do you think? Is this the only cat you've got? Yes, sir, it is. And she's been the only cat since she was brought in at five weeks old? Yes, sir. Okay, a lot of times uh, we have some uh, disorders where you have a solo cat that's raised as a kitten. As far as supplements that you can give, have you tried a calming collar? She will not keep a collar on. She will really? bite and chew on the collar until she get it, gets it stuck in her mouth. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know how tight you're putting the collar on, but uh, certainly I can understand that. Some cats will not tolerate it. Uh, the gabapentin did not work. And certainly, I, I wonder about the dosage. You might talk to your veterinarian about increasing the dosage of that. There are other things for anxiety that are used. Uh, one is called buspirone. You might talk to your vet about that. Uh, and some cats just really, uh, how is she at home? Describe what she does at home, okay? Is she okay at home? Well, she she will come out and she will visit for a bit. But any little noise um, scares her, and she runs off and hides. 
Well, I, I wish she had had a companion cat that might help a lot. I don't know if she'll accept it now, but a lot of times, as I said, when a cat is raised in a solo situation as a kitten on up, a lot of times they are very sensitive and very, uh, what should I say, not antisocial, but they don't do well around a lot of people and don't are not very outgoing. So that is a consideration, though, is possibly getting a uh, maybe a young kitten to try to introduce to her. All right, Shannon, hate to cut you off, but we have run out of time. Thanks for your call. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. For Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.